We'll get into the rest of Skim This in a minute. But first, we want to direct your attention to a developing story that broke overnight as President Trump and the First Lady tested positive for COVID-19. For more information on that story, look out for an update in your Skim This feed later today with everything we know right now. Now, on to the rest of the show. Today's episode is brought to you by Normal Now, a campaign powered by Electrify America. Because some people think electric cars are just a weird new trend, but the truth is, they're normal now. Vacancies on the Supreme Court don't come up often. The nine justices serve for life. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was an active judge right up until she died last month at age 87. She even called into the court from her hospital bed. Talk about commitment. But in other cases, when someone doesn't die while actively serving, they often retire so that the current president that replaces them picks someone like them. All of this leads to a relative balance on the Supreme Court between conservative justices and liberal ones. So not everyone knows the outcome of cases in advance. Seema Moapatra is a constitutional law professor at Indiana University and Florida A&M. And she says the Supreme Court replacement we're likely about to see play out with Amy Coney Barrett replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg doesn't fit into that conservative replaced by conservative, liberal by a liberal model. They're both women, and even though Judge Barrett tried to, in her acceptance speech, make parallels between her and Justice Ginsburg, their philosophies and their values could not be more different. Welcome to Skim This. Today, we're going to fill in the key details you need to know about RBG's likely replacement on the Supreme Court, Judge Amy Coney Barrett. We'll cover her background and the Supreme Court cases she'll likely be ruling on, possibly within weeks of her appointment, that could have a big impact on your life now and for a long time into the future. Then, we'll talk to Tony Award-winning director Julie Taymor about her brand new film charting the life of feminist activist Gloria Steinem. We've also got the skim on some important new CDC advice going into the holidays. But first, we want to offer a little context on two stories that have been developing throughout the week, having to do with debate etiquette and tax returns, tax returns, tax returns, tax returns. It's time to talk tax returns, specifically President Trump's tax returns. For almost 50 years, U.S. presidents have released their tax records to the public. But for more than four years, President Trump has broken with tradition and refused to open up his files. Over the weekend, the New York Times finally beat Trump to the punch and published details from nearly two decades of the president's corporate tax returns. And the big reveal? In 10 out of 15 years, the New York Times reported that Trump paid no federal income taxes. And then in 2016 and 2017, he only paid $750. If you're thinking, wait, I pay more in taxes than the president, you're not alone. That's because, according to an AP analysis of IRS figures, the average taxpayer has to cough up about 16 times more than that. So let's get into how Trump was able to keep his tax bill so low. Apparently, one strategy Trump used to navigate the tax code involves claiming big financial losses. According to the New York Times, Trump claimed the Trump Organization was losing money. 
While those losses could undermine his reputation as a successful businessman, they did help him out tax-wise. Because when a business has substantial losses, it doesn't have to pay taxes on those losses and can even receive big tax refunds after the losses occurred. The second strategy experts think Trump used to lower his tax bill involved claiming a lot of things as business expenses. He's reportedly deducted everything from property taxes on a 200-acre home in upstate New York to even $70,000 for hairstyling during his time hosting The Apprentice. If you're thinking, can I deduct my haircuts? Probably not. So we suggest treating your hair and makeup as a personal expense, unless your accountant says otherwise. Another deductible the report pointed out involved consulting fees paid to Trump's daughter, Ivanka. Well, she was already considered an employee of the Trump Organization, meaning the Times alleges that Ivanka got paid as an outside consultant in addition to her work as a Trump Organization employee. And then those expenses were written off. These tactics and what you think about them have people divided. On one hand, some Democrats like Joe Biden say it's unfair the president paid less in federal taxes than working Americans. Biden's 2020 online shop is already selling merch with the slogan, I paid more income taxes than Donald Trump. And Biden even dropped his own tax returns right before Tuesday's debate, showing he paid nearly $300,000 in income taxes to the federal government last year. So how is President Trump responding? In Tuesday's debate, he said, actually, he'd paid a million dollars in taxes, though he didn't specify when. And when challenged to prove it, he said that would have to wait till his taxes are done being audited. Trump said that since before running for president. But considering the IRS audits most presidents the whole time they're in office and we still haven't seen those tax returns, we might never get that proof. Separately, we should point out that Trump is definitely not the only businessman to reportedly use tax loopholes to his advantage. Tax policy experts say lots of wealthy Americans and big corporations use teams of lawyers and accountants to find ways to keep their tax bills as low as possible. And pulling that off is sometimes touted as a sign that someone's just good at business, which is essentially what Trump said in Tuesday's debate. Like every other private person, unless they're stupid, they go through the laws and that's what it is. So what's next? These newly published details about President Trump's tax returns have started a heated debate over the U.S. tax code. And while some of Trump's tax moves could put him and his family under new scrutiny, he's not alone in saying, hey, don't hate the player, hate the game. And if you do hate the game, the best way to express that is probably to vote. For all your 2020 questions, we've got you covered. Head over to theskim.com slash 2020 to learn more. Oh, and speaking of 2020 drama, if you watched Tuesday's presidential debate, you probably heard a lot of this. No, I, I, the answer to the question is no. Ukraine. No, I, sir. With a billion sir, dollars, if you that don't get rid of you know what, you're, wait, not stop. true. You're doing it. You're going to have tape. true. There was so much talking over each other that viewers relying on closed captioning said they weren't able to understand a lot of what went down. And for the rest of us, it sounded more like a circus than an enlightened discourse. Vote now. Make court? sure you, in fact, let people know you're a senator. I'm not going to answer the question Why because, would you answer that because question? the you question is, the question is, the question is, who is your, up, man. listen. 
The moderator of Tuesday's debate, Fox News' Chris Wallace, has even said he wasn't ready for what he encountered. Well now, all that interrupting we heard this week could be prompting some rule changes. The nonpartisan group that oversees the presidential debates and is organizing the next two meetings of Trump and Biden is now saying, quote, additional structure should be added to the format of the remaining debates to ensure a more orderly discussion of the issues. One reported rule change would involve a more strictly enforced rule against interruptions. Though Wallace did try to keep things under control. Gentlemen, is, <laughs> I hate to raise my voice, but I see it seems to be, why shouldn't I be different than the two of you? A more dramatic possible change would give the moderator the ability to cut off a candidate's microphone, something Republican Party Chair Ronna McDaniel and Trump campaign staff both say they strongly object to. Any official rule changes could be announced soon, so stay tuned in the coming days. But don't count out, hey, that's not true, the possibility of hearing something like she this. She a statement, it's my turn. <clears throat> hearing something like this. Can you believe this? You're letting her just talk and talk and talk. The next time the candidates meet face to face. Hello, is this thing on? You gotta be kidding me. Some people think electric cars are weird. But when you think about it, it used to seem pretty weird to get your news from a little voice coming out of your headphones, too. Like podcasts, electric cars are normal now. With longer ranges, you can take them just about anywhere. And with lots of charging stations and faster charging times, it's easy to charge up on the way. Plus, with lots of affordable models and less routine maintenance, electric cars may actually save you money. Find out more about how electric cars are normal at normalnow.com. Last weekend, at a ceremony at the White House, President Trump announced his pick to replace Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, the notorious RBG. Her name? Amy Coney Barrett. Barrett is just 48 years old. She'd be the youngest justice on the Supreme Court, but she's got an impressive resume. She graduated magna cum laude from Rhodes College in Memphis, getting top honors in English. And when she pursued a law degree at Notre Dame, she graduated as the number one student in her class and was given the law school's highest honor. Later, Barrett was a law clerk for the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. She tried cases while working at a top DC law firm and then entered the world of teaching law at Notre Dame in 2002. The Notre Dame Law School still gushes about Barrett, noting that three different graduating classes voted Barrett as Professor of the Year. And in 2017, Barrett finally made the jump behind the bench when she was appointed to be a judge on the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago. Oh, and she's pretty good at mom jokes. The president has asked me to become the ninth justice. And as it happens, I'm used to being in a group of nine, my family. Yeah, Barrett and her husband have seven kids, two of whom were adopted from Haiti. She and her husband are also tied to a Christian religious group known as the People of Praise. The group's website describes its members as possessing the ability to speak in tongues and perform physical healing. And according to the Associated Press, the group believes men are, quote, divinely ordained to be the head of the family. So that's Barrett, the student, the lawyer, the professor, the mom, and the woman of faith. So far, Republicans have been pretty enthusiastic about her. Within days of her nomination, the GOP started selling notorious ACB shirts online. 
I looked and I studied, and you are very eminently qualified for this job. You are going to be fantastic. Thank you. But since Supreme Court justices don't sit on the court just to inspire us with their personal stories, let's look at what replacing RBG with ACB means on the issues, starting with where she stands on abortion. It's an issue that's frequently been coming up at the Supreme Court involving state abortion laws. And Barrett is likely to be asked about her views during her Senate confirmation hearing. Except Seema Moapatra, the constitutional law professor we heard from earlier, isn't exactly holding her breath about what Barrett says in that hearing. She's probably going to be very careful about um, what she talks about, but I do think that her record as a law professor in her own writings, in her speeches, and in her three years as an appellate court judge tell us everything that we need to know. Since joining the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago in 2017, Barrett has weighed in on two big abortion cases. In one, she was in favor of a law that required parental notifications when minors sought an abortion. In another, she advocated for a law that, in addition to banning abortions for reasons related to sex or disability of a fetus, required fetuses to be cremated or buried after an abortion. And on the central question of whether she'd uphold Roe v. Wade's protection of a woman's right to an abortion, Barrett said, even though that ruling is precedent, other abortion restrictions were fair game. I don't think the the core case, that Roe's core holding that, you know, women have a right to an abortion, I don't think that would change. But I think the question of whether people can get very late-term abortions, you know, how many restrictions can be put on clinics, I think that would change. Our constitutional law expert, Moa Patras, says that answer, though, is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to reproductive health and just plain healthcare access in general. And that's because of a major Supreme Court case that, if Barrett is quickly appointed to the court, will be coming up in just a few weeks. There's a case that's coming before the court a week after the election. That case has to do with the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare. And depending on how the Supreme Court rules, it's possible the entire Affordable Care Act could be gutted, along with some key patient protections. Before the Affordable Care Act, women were charged more for health insurance. Many, many plans did not cover maternity care. The practical effects of a Supreme Court pick on people's lives could not be more clear. One thing we heard in listening to lots and lots of people talk about Amy Coney Barrett is that most criticism of her possible addition to the Supreme Court has less to do with who she is, or necessarily even what she thinks, than it does about either the historic shift to the right that the court is about to take, or the fact that a justice is being added to the court at all right before a pivotal election. Let's hit the first point about the Supreme Court getting more conservative by calling in another super smart constitutional law expert. Maya Mannion is a visiting professor of law at American University. Looking historically, we were already in a far more conservative direction than we had been in the past when we had a Kennedy at the center of the court. Then we had a Roberts at the center of the court. Now, I don't know who's going to be at the center of the court if Judge Barrett gets appointed to the court, but we are already in a conservative direction and we are going more rightwards. Mannion thinks this shift actually raises a legitimacy issue for the court. 
since the court could soon be far more conservative than American voters. Imagine a tug of war. Before RBG died, four liberal justices were on one side with five conservative justices on the other. Sometimes there were surprise outcomes, like in 2015 when a conservative justice joined the four liberal justices in a historic decision to legalize gay marriage. But take out RBG on one side and add ACB on the other, and in a six to three tug of war, it's pretty clear who's gonna win before people start pulling the rope. And given how many issues the Supreme Court weighs in on, the stuff we already talked about on abortion rights and healthcare is just the start. Some experts and advocacy groups predict ACB will support religious exemptions to certain civil rights and anti-discrimination laws. And on guns, Barrett said very little publicly. But last year, she argued that felony-based bans on firearm possession, a relatively moderate gun control measure, would be unconstitutional. But also we need to think structurally, right? What happens with separation of powers, right? Are we going to see further ex expansion of executive power? Oh, and speaking of executive power, that brings us to another reason some critics of Amy Coney Barrett are opposing her appointment right now. Because who ought to control the executive branch is literally being decided as we speak. Close to a million Americans have already voted in the presidential election. And millions more will keep early voting or sending in ballots as Barrett goes through the confirmation process. And if Barrett is put onto the court in the coming weeks, she could soon hold a lot of power if there's a close election and confusion over the vote count. Remember the 2000 election? It's hazy for us too. But it was between George W. Bush and Al Gore. And the winner really came down to who won Florida. Florida was still recounting ballots in early December until the Supreme Court ruled it was time to stop the recount. Out of options, Gore conceded a day later, handing Bush the victory. If there's a reason to litigate election results, to somehow challenge election results, it could get up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And with the Judge Barrett, you could have five votes that would hand the election to uh, President Trump. Now, that is a lot of ifs, certainly not a prediction, but that is certainly a concern at the moment. So there are some big ifs here, but Trump is already predicting the Supreme Court could play a big role in this year's election. Here he was last week. I think it's very important. I think this will end up in the Supreme Court. And I think it's very important that we have nine justices. It's almost like he's saying that quiet part out loud, that he wants her on the court first and foremost to secure his election. Fatima Gosgraves is the president and CEO of the National Women's Law Center. Top Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee have already asked Barrett to sit out any 2020 election cases. They say the timing of her being appointed here is a little questionable. But so far, Barrett hasn't committed to recusing herself. Uh, that should make everyone not just uncomfortable, really, really afraid around the state of our democracy. It's not how we function. You know, we are a country of laws and rules and norms. And that consistency gives people certainty. It allows us to have trust and faith in our institutions, even when we sometimes disagree. And that is what is being eroded right now. So what's the skim? Judge Amy Coney Barrett's appointment to the Supreme Court isn't official just yet. 
The Senate Judiciary Committee is due to start her confirmation hearings as early as October 12th. But at least four Republican senators would need to vote against her nomination to stop her from joining the court right in the middle of a pivotal election. And that's unlikely. Meaning her beliefs and judicial philosophy are worth getting a sense of now because at age 48, she could be on the court for decades. Constitutional law experts predict ACB could be a key vote on everything from gun control to civil rights, or possibly even the outcome of an election. Step back, says Gosgraves, and it's not hard to see how much is on the line. So if you care about climate change, the Supreme Court matters there. If you care about worker protections, it matters there. Survivor justice issues, reproductive health, broader civil rights, voting, criminal justice. The Supreme Court has had important things to say about the contours of our laws and what is and isn't possible. Speaking of women who could change history and already have... You're Gloria Steinem. I am. It's your do what you wanna do. The Glorias. It's a biopic about women's rights activist Gloria Steinem, based on her 2015 memoir, My Life on the Road, and told through not just one actor, but four. Most people think of Gloria post Ms. Magazine or around that time, but they don't know how she got to that place. That's award-winning director Julie Taymor. So I was very taken with the book, but what I couldn't figure out was this is 80 years of a human's life over this incredible expanse. There's no way one or even two actors could play that. Steinem co-founded Ms. Magazine in 1971. The magazine covered hot-button issues like reproductive rights and sexual harassment in the workplace. Steinem also helped lead the Women's Liberation Movement, co-founded the National Women's Political Caucus, and campaigned for the Equal Rights Amendment to prohibit discrimination based on sex. And in 2013, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. The Glorias shows us Steinem's life starting from childhood. Tamor shows Gloria as a child stepping up to care for her own mother who suffered from depression and had given up a journalism career to be at home. Steinem later credited her mother for inspiring her to fight for women's rights. Gloria was never judging them or what women who stay at home or decide not to go out into the workplace. She was just advocating for choice. It's always for choice, for women to have equal choice. Not that one thing is better for another, but to be true to what you need and what you want yourself. In the film, the four Glorias are played by Ryan Kara Armstrong, Lulu Wilson, and Academy Award winners Julianne Moore and Alicia Vikander. And Tamor even uses the different Glorias interchangeably. In one scene, Gloria is asked to give a homily at a Catholic church. And on the way there, her cab is surrounded by anti-abortion activists, banging on the windows and yelling baby killer. I thought, well, you know what? I'm gonna put the six-year-old actor in that car. Because in truth, what Gloria is feeling at that time is what a child would feel. But when the taxi cab door is opened by the police, Julianne Moore, composed, gets out of that taxi. So I was playing with the notion of what you see is not necessarily on the outside what is going on in the inside. And when the film comes to a close, Gloria herself is shown on her way to give a speech at the Women's March in 2017 
after President Trump's inauguration. And remember, the Constitution does not begin with I, the President. It begins with we, the people. So don't try to divide us. Do not try to divide us. And even though things feel pretty divided these days, Gloria Steinem and Julie Taymor hope that audiences are inspired to go out and vote and find their voice. She hopes that this movie inspires women to tell their stories, that everybody has a story, and that they should tell it. The Glorias is available now on Amazon Prime Video. The truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. Before we go today, we wanted to talk about the chill in the air. Fall is officially here. And while that might normally mean costume parties, parades, haunted houses, and hayrides, this year, all of those things might be too high risk. That's according to the CDC, which recently published its guidelines to staying safe during the holiday season. Those guidelines apply to Thanksgiving, New Year's, and religious holidays coming up like Hanukkah, Diwali, and Christmas. The CDC's health guidelines aren't all that new. Avoid large gatherings and enclosed spaces. Wear a mask. Wash your hands. But apply this to the way we usually celebrate the holidays and we might need to make some changes. Unfortunately, the CDC says traveling to visit family and hosting big indoor dinners are higher risk activities that should be avoided. The same goes for attending parades or heading to crowded stores. So this year, maybe buy your presents on Cyber Monday instead of Black Friday and call your grandma on Skype rather than sitting next to her at dinner. If that makes November and December sound a little bleak, the CDC's Halloween guidelines might allow things to feel a bit more normal. Even though Halloween masks don't count as protective gear, the CDC recommends we try a Halloween-themed cloth mask instead, which could actually go with most costumes. And thankfully, plenty of activities that make Halloween great can be socially distant and take place out in the crisp, cool air. Whether it's wandering down a haunted forest path or ogling the decorations in neighborhoods that really get into the holiday spirit. And while directly handing candy to children going door-to-door is definitely a trick this year, for a treat, prep goodie bags in advance so kids can grab from a safe distance. Or if that all sounds like too much effort, you could just keep the candy until next year. That is unless your friendly household ghost okay, just actually you, finds it before then. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Alex Carr and Luke Vargas, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. And I'm your host, Justine Davey. We'll be back in your feed again next week. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. Thank you.